Galatians 3.23, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ from at all from a slave, though he is master of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir of God through Christ. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. In conjunction with it, I invite you to turn to Lord's Day 46 and the Forms and Prayers book, page 253, page 253, Lord's Day 46, concerning uh, uh, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Lord's Day 46, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us, at the very beginning of our prayer, what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse us the things of this life. Why the words, who who is in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way and to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. Thus far, the catechism for today. Beloved of the Lord, the Catechism introduces prayer by asking the question, why do Christians need to pray? Why do Christians need to pray? And the answer is twofold. There is a moral necessity and there is a practical necessity. It is a moral necessity because it's, it's the chief part of the thankfulness that we owe to God. And there's a practical necessity in that Christians don't get what they need unless they ask for it. As Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Uh, We ought to pray. Uh, It's our duty to pray and it is our best interest to pray. Uh, A prayerless Christian is uh, an impoverished Christian. In fact, uh, it can uh, possibly be argued that the, the Christian that does not pray deludes himself about being a Christian, if you don't pray, you can have no true assurance 
that you are a child of God because it's impossible to be engrafted into Christ and not produce the fruits of faith and good works, which include especially the giving of thanks to God in prayer. Now, I have never met a Christian who said, I am the best prayer that there could ever be. (laughs) I have never met a Christian who did not hang his head, so to speak, in shame and say, I don't pray as well as I ought and I don't pray as often as I ought. I imagine the disciples felt that way when they observed Jesus praying. They realized that they really didn't know how to pray at all when they watched Jesus. He, he was perfect, of course, and prayed perfectly as well as he ought and as often as he should. And so they came to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. We also ought to come to God and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And as we do that, the catechism instructs us using the same model prayer that Jesus used when he taught his disciples to pray. And we want to look tonight at this opening address, how we are told to address God and take note that that God has become your father, that God is a heavenly father, and that God is our father. Not just my father, but our father. First of all, God has become your father. The Catechism says that this idea has to be awakened in us. Uh, Another translation of the Catechism says it has to be kindled in us. It's something that is not natural. The natural man, the, the man or woman without the Spirit of God, has a very distorted view of God. Uh, often uh, the, the world views God as either an impersonal force or a powerful person but uh, distant and unconcerned, uh, or they, uh, they may have the idea that God is uh, an angry judge or heartless and cruel, a spoiler, a monster, one who is determined to make our lives uh, miserable. Uh, often the world wants to put the thought of God out of mind and uh, Atheism has been uh, described by others as uh, the the last refuge of those who are afraid of the light. Atheists like to say that uh, religion is the last refuge of those who are afraid of the darkness, but I I think the others are right, uh, more correct, that atheism is the the refuge of those who are afraid of the light. The very idea of God scares them, and so much better to just pretend that he's not there and deny and and keep on saying over and over again, there is no God, there is no God, and hope that, uh, that it comes true. But though, even those who have been raised in the church often have a, uh, a wrong understanding of God. Uh, there are many who are raised in the church who think that God is a very strict perfectionist who can never be satisfied, and, and people can't feel close to such a God because... Uh, They always imagine the frown of his disapproval is looking down on them, and uh, they they too are somewhat frightened of God. But in today's modern evangelical world, uh, it's far more likely that uh, the view of God is that of an indulgent softy, you know, kind of like Santa Claus, who's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice, but 
nobody gets coal for Christmas. Everybody gets presents. Uh, that's the way they view God, you know. His, his bark is worse than his bite. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good guy, and, and he's going to uh, take care of us and so forth. But now Christ has, has made possible for us a, a much fuller and, and better understanding of God that, that not only is he a holy and, and just God, a righteous God, who is the, the judge of the living and the dead, but he's also a merciful God and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, and faithfulness. And those are the words that, that Moses heard from uh, Mount Sinai when he uh, asked God to reveal God's glory to him. He wanted to see God's glory, and God, in essence, said, you can't. You can't see my glory and survive, but I will reveal myself to you in a way that you can handle. And, and what, what God did was he went past him and declared his name, and his name is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, verse 6. That's, uh, that's who God is, uh, a great God, a powerful God, a judge, uh, one who punishes iniquity, but one who also shows mercy. In the words of Psalm 103, who forgives all our iniquity, who heals all our diseases, who redeems our life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has paid for our sins, because he has atoned for our sins at the cross, he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion for those who fear him. This idea of a compassionate father is what the Catechism says has to be awakened in us. That's what Paul is trying to do in Galatians 3 and chapter 4. He's trying to awaken in the Galatians the idea that, that they are children of God and that God is their Father. He says in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You're all sons of God. You have to come to realize that. And because you are sons, you are heirs of the promises. He says, now there is no uh, Greek, no Jew or Greek, nor slave, nor free, neither male nor free ma female, but you are all sons of God and therefore heirs of the promises. You know, under Mosaic law in the uh, Old Testament uh, time, uh, Greeks or Gentiles had no uh, promise from God no inheritance in the promised land. Likewise, slaves had no uh, promise or standing uh, in uh, the people of Israel. And uh, females were a little better off. They had certain inheritance rights, but they were limited compared to sons in Israel. They, uh, they could inherit if they had no brothers and if they married within their clan. But now, God, uh, now Paul is saying, Everybody, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, you're all sons of God, and therefore you are all heirs. You know, in 1 Peter 3, uh, uh, Peter uh, admonishes husbands to treat their wives with uh, gentleness and respect because 
they are co-heirs with you of the grace of life. They inherit just like you do. They inherit as sons. They're co-heirs with you of the grace of life. And so uh, he said, now, grab hold of this idea that, that God has done something wonderful through Jesus Christ, through his atoning work, because he has uh, been born of a woman under the law and uh, has fulfilled uh, the curse of the law on our behalf, uh, now the curse has been lifted from us and uh, all the divisions in mankind that have come about because of sin are removed and we can all equally inherit as sons in the kingdom of God. He says we have been given a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. Now that's not two different ideas there, Abba, Father. That's the same word. Uh, uh, Abba is an Aramaic word. It's the Aramaic word for Father. And because Paul is writing to uh, many Christians who were once Gentiles and don't know Arabic, he's saying we all we have been given, given a spirit by which we cry Abba, which translated means Father. That's sort of what he's saying there by putting those two words together. Abba translated as Father. Now, what's so amazing about that? Well, what, what's amazing about that is that the Jews well understood that God was Father. They knew that God was the Father of all creation and that God was especially the Father of His people. They understood the idea of the fatherhood of God. Uh, Psalm 103 mentions the, the fatherhood of God as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So uh, they knew about the fatherhood of God, but they would never dare to address God with such a familiar term of address, such an uh, ordinary term. It, it, that would be be presumptuous, presuming on your relationship with God, calling him father would, would imply that, that you were his equal, which is why, of course, whenever Jesus made reference to the fact that God was his father and called God his father in front of the scribes and the Pharisees, they uh, saw red and uh, wanted to uh, take him and, and stone him. They said, uh, you make yourself equal with God when you call you God your father. Uh, they would never address God that way. But now, Paul says, uh, he says it here in Galatians and also in Romans, uh, that we, uh, we have the right to address God by this familiar term. The Spirit teaches us to do that. This is something that, that has to dawn upon us. It has to be awakened in us. It, it's, it's not something that we... We come to naturally. Our natural reaction to God is, is that of Adam and Eve after they ate the forbidden fruit. You know, they heard the voice of God and they said, uh, we're sinners and uh, we're naked, uh, we're ashamed. And uh, therefore they tried to hide and uh, tried to cover their own shame. Uh, a futile attempt uh, uh, to use a fig leaf to, to uh, be an item of clothing. They did it, but it, it's... It's ridiculous to try to, would you feel comfortable wearing uh, an apron of fig leaves uh, that your uh, private parts were covered well? Uh, I don't think so. And uh, all man's attempts to deal with his shame are like that. They're futile and worthless. But, but our natural reaction to God is to, to run because we're sinners and to hide because we're sinners, because we feel guilty and we are guilty. But now, 
cross of Christ, we have to get past that. We have to recognize our sins have been forgiven. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now you have been adopted into the family of God and you are his children. Every man, woman, and child among us who believes in Christ is a, is a child of God and inherits as a son in the kingdom of God all the blessings promised uh, to Abraham. Uh, when we come to believe that God is our father, this, this engenders two attitudes in us. When, when, the, when this begins to seek in, we begin to think of God now with, with what the Catechism calls uh, reverence and trust. Those are two different attitudes. Reverence. Reverence is, is like awe. Reverence and awe go together. Uh, we come to, to look at God and with awe and amazement. You know, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Uh, how can it be that I should gain an interest in the cross? Uh, the, the hymns of the church express this, this uh, awe and wonder and reverence that that this high and holy God who is high and lifted up and dwells in unapproachable light, that this God should come down and come near. We stand in awe of him. We stand in awe of him and reverence him because he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. You know, the heavens declare his glory and the firmament his power. And, and uh, you know, we see his work everywhere and we, we're just amazed by it. But then especially we stand in awe of him and reverence him because of his work in redemption. Creation, redemption, it fills us with awe, it fills us with wonder, it fills us with reverence and respect for, for who he is. But it also inspires us in us trust. We learn to trust him and to uh, trust him more and more. You know, when a little child has a bad dream at night, what do they want? Well, more often than not, they want daddy. They want daddy to come or they go to daddy or, or call out for daddy to come because when daddy is there and daddy sits on the bed and, and holds their hand, then they're not afraid anymore. Uh, and uh, anything that goes bump in the night uh, doesn't scare them because daddy is there. Father is there and, and child trusts father. We can trust God to take care of us. He shows throughout the Bible that, that he wants to, to care for us he said to, uh, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Israel is my firstborn. Israel's my child. You know, he's my firstborn child. Let my people go. They're mine. They belong to me. I'm their father. Therefore, you stop hurting them. You let them go. They belong to me, not to you. That's our father. Our father cares for us. He means, it's protection. He means he's, his fatherhood protects us. Uh, Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. What command in the Bible is repeated more than any other command? What's the, the one command that, that comes again and again and again? Fear not, fear not. Be not afraid, be not afraid, over and over again. Old Testament, New Testament, God comes to his people and says, don't be afraid. I'm your father. I will take care of you. And so we learn to trust him. But not only does he take care of us, he loves us. 
John writes in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He's lavished love upon us, that we should be called children of God. And because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because I know, because he is Father, he will care for me, he will love for me, he will provide for me. It is with such awe and trust that we ought to approach God in prayer. Such an attitude will do much to increase your desire to pray, and it will motivate praise and thanksgiving when you pray. You know, Paul says in Philippians 4, to be anxious for nothing but with everything, uh, bring your request to God with thanksgiving. So often when we're in trouble, we forget the with thanksgiving. We, we come with our requests, we come with our urgent need, oh Lord, I'm in trouble, help me, and, and we forget to be thankful. But if we remember to stand in awe of him, who is the creator in the heavens and the earth, and that he has adopted us in Christ to be his beloved children, uh, then bringing that attitude to prayer will increase our desire to pray and motivate praise and thanksgiving in our prayers. God is your heavenly Father. Let that idea be awakened in you. Let it grow in you. Let it become a dominant theme in your life. But the, uh, the, Jesus didn't just say, pray to your Father. He said, pray to your Father in heaven. Pray to your Father in heaven. He is your heavenly Father, our Father who is in heaven. There's a twofold reason to emphasize the heavenly nature of God's fatherhood. First of all, it's to create, correct any uh, false ideas about fatherhood. Uh, false ideas based on our earthly experience of fathers. Uh, many of you who are fathers uh, strive to be good fathers, and that is commendable, but uh, every father will have to admit that they're not perfect fathers. And uh, sadly, uh, even in the church, there are occasionally fathers who are abysmal fathers, who are bad fathers, and, and give fathers a bad name. And children are, have been abused by uh, abusive fathers. And uh, it's sometimes difficult to uh, disassociate that negative experience uh, with the fatherhood of God. You know, uh, there are feminists in the church who uh, point out that, that people have trouble relating to God as father because they were abused by fathers. And, and so their solution is to, to drop the idea of the fatherhood of God. I don't know if you're... Uh, familiar with the, uh, the Gray Psalter hymnal. We don't use the Gray Psalter hymnal, but some of you know uh, about the Gray Psalter hymnal. And uh, in the Gray Psalter hymnal, Psalm 103, that says, as a, the Bible says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Well, when that is put to music in the Gray Psalter hymnal, it says, as parents have compassion on their children. Uh, they deliberately decided to eliminate the word father there because too many negative associations of abused children have negative associations with fathers, so we have to drop the idea of fatherhood. Well, I don't think that's necessary. What's necessary is that we learn to distinguish that we have a heavenly father, and heavenly fathers are different than earthly fathers. 
in the first congregation that I served in uh, Florida, uh, there was a man in the church, uh, a, a, a very uh, strong believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but who had grown up in an abusive situation. And he said to me, uh, my father was one of the worst you could imagine. But he says, I have no problem calling God in heaven Father because I know that, that he's the exact opposite of what my earthly father was. I'm able to distinguish between the earthly father and the heavenly father. And so God teaches us to pray to our heavenly father so that we, we don't bring any uh, earthly ideas uh, and uh, think of him in any earthly way, uh, but recognize that he indeed is uh, the God who is perfect in every way uh, and uh, loving in every way. But uh, he's also called Heavenly Father to inspire confidence in us that by his almighty power, he will give us everything we need for body and soul. In heaven means he's able to do far more than any earthly father could do. He surrounds us with his uh, love and power as a protective shield. And uh, as the form for baptism says, he either will protect us from all harm or he will turn it to our profit. He will make everything work together for our good. His almighty power is uh, employed for the benefit of all his children. You know, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Remember the words at the end of Romans 8 that nothing in life or in death, nothing present or future, nothing uh, in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We need to affirm this because uh, there is within the realm of Christendom, and by Christendom I mean uh, anyone or any group that calls itself Christian, whether they deserve that title or not, uh, but in the broad realm of the, the Christian uh, religion, there are some uh, who espouse what has come to be known as uh, open theism. And in uh, the idea of open theism is uh, designed to uh, protect the reputation of God when bad things happen in the lives of God's people. You know, uh, whenever something bad happens to us, uh, we're tempted to ask, now why couldn't God prevent that? Why, why would God let that happen? Why would God let that tragic accident happen? Why would God let that young person die? Or things like that, you know, and, and we're tempted to, to be angry with God because uh, we, we think he's uh, in control. Indeed, he is. But open theism says, no, no, he's not in control. Uh, the future is open to God. And God is just as much surprised by these tragedies as we are. Uh, well, uh, what good is a God like that then if he's not uh, all-powerful and if he doesn't work all things according to the counsel of his well, will and that there's nothing that can uh, hinder his will? Um, uh, if, if God is, is just uh, uh, as surprised as we are and not in control of all things, what's he good for? Well, in open theism, he's uh, described, uh, I don't know if they use this uh, analogy, but uh, my interpretation of their description is uh, he's, the, he's the cheerleader on the sidelines. You and I are out on the, on the court or on the field uh, engaged in the, the contest, in the battle, but he, he's on the sidelines saying, uh, you can do it if you try, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, you know. Uh, just, uh, I, I believe in you. I believe you have the, within yourself the strength to, to deal with this. And so God is there clapping and applauding and cheering and c 
encouraging us to, to go on. But uh, don't blame God for the bad things because uh, uh, the future is open to him just as it is uh, open to us. No, that's not true. That's not true. We affirm to the contrary that our Heavenly Father indeed is Almighty God who indeed works all things according to his counsel of his will, who knows the beginning from the end because he has ordained everything that comes to pass. And he is the God who has promised to work all things together for our good and for our salvation. Jesus is commanding to uh, us to, to come to him in this way with the assurance of faith that everything you need for body and spirit will, he will supply by his almighty power in response to your request when you ask in faith according to his will. We're commanded in scripture to pray believing. That means pray with expectation. Expect God to give you what you ask for in prayer. But again, Christians will say, well, I asked for things and I didn't get them. Did I not believe hard enough? Uh, is my faith too weak? Uh, what, what's the problem here? Well, the promise is that he gives us what we ask in faith, and faith means faith in what he has promised to do for us, not faith in whatever we want. You know, he teaches us what he will do for us. He, he makes certain promises, and when he teaches us to pray, he says, pray for your daily bread, pray for the forgiveness of sins, pray for your struggle with uh, temptation, and uh, uh, I promise, when you pray for those things, I will give you what you need. And there are other things in Scripture that he promises to, to do for his people. And uh, we go to the Scriptures, we read what, uh, what we are to expect from him, and then we pray believing that he will do for us what he has promised to do for us. That's what it means to pray in faith and to, to pray believing. It doesn't mean that, that you can pray for a, a pink Cadillac, uh, uh, like the, uh, the Mary Kay cosmetic uh, salespeople all hope they'll get a pink Cadillac. Well, I don't sell Mary Kay, but I want a pink Cadillac. Uh, well, there's no promise in the Bible for pink Cadillacs. Uh, uh, and uh, to pray for that believing and pray in faith for a pink Cadillac is to be presumptuous in prayer. And uh, Jesus says, not only you have not because you ask not, but you don't get because you ask for selfish gain. And uh, when we uh, don't get what we want, we realize that uh, we, uh, we've been asking for something contrary to his will and something which is not good for us. And so we pray to our Heavenly Father. We pray to our Heavenly Father so that we don't confuse him with any earthly ideas about fatherhood that fall short of the mark and uh, because it inspires confidence that he will give us everything that we need everything that he has promised to give us in answer to prayer. But then one more thing we need to recognize here, and that is that when we pray, we pray to our Father, not my Father. Jesus said to his disciples, when you pray, don't just pray uh, about my Father, but pray our Father. We're to, we recognize that uh, prayer is a very private matter. You know, Jesus said, uh, uh, when you pray, go and uh, close the door and pray to your Father in secret. Now, of course, there are examples and commands for public prayer and family prayer. That's, uh, that's not forbidden. But the vast majority of our praying ought to be in private. But even though it is in private, it is uh, uh, never uh, 
so personal that it should not include your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Even when we are alone, we may not forget that we are part of a group joined to one another as brothers and sisters in the faith, fellow members of of the body of Christ. We may be isolated by providential circumstances, but we are never to think of ourselves independent of other Christians. We need to pray for them and uh, as well as for ourselves. Uh, you uh, you uh, know the rest of the Lord's Prayer and know that uh, it's uh, forgive us and uh, uh, give us this day and lead us not into temptation. That They're all in the plural because we are to pray not only for ourselves but for one another. Salvation is a very personal matter, but it's never a private matter. Rugged individualism or a spirit of independency or remaining aloof and distant from other Christians or the church is is contrary to the will of God. Uh, The church is the assembly of the saints and the, the body of Christ, and we're all connected to each other, and so we ought to come together and be together and and encourage one another and and not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are doing, it says in the book of Hebrews. I don't know whether uh, some of you may have read in the Christian Renewal magazine uh, what uh, one of uh, my colleagues uh, said at a speech that he gave in uh, Canada, Reverend John Bowers. uh, He likened uh, the church uh, to the the message that's found on a lot of the furniture in uh, the Ikea furniture stores. uh, I haven't seen too many IKEA stores around here. I, I don't know if they are. They're a Swedish uh, company that uh, sells uh, furniture, uh, inexpensive furniture. And one of the uh, reasons it's inexpensive is because on a lot of the display models uh, that are on display uh, indicate that when you buy this, uh, you're going to get it in disassembled form, and it says some assembly required. Well, uh, Reverend Bowers says that's the church, uh, assembly required. We, we have to come together because we belong together and uh, we are uh, part of each other. Uh, just as the, the hand can't exist without the arm and the arm can't exist without the torso and, and uh, we all need feet and legs and they all have to be attached to one another and joined to one another in order to, to, to grow properly. So if the, the body of Christ is to grow, we need to be together. And uh, that is expressed in prayer when we pray our Father and give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation and uh, uh, forgive us our trespasses. Uh, We are a family and we are bound together and that uh, binding together is uh, the, the nature of the church of Jesus Christ. So when you pray, remember and believe that Christ has opened a way for sinners to come to God as beloved children. Christ has opened the way for you to say, Father, through this almighty creator of the heavens and the earth, who is so high and lifted up, you are allowed, encouraged, it's your duty to, to believe that he is your Father, and he is your heavenly Father who, who cares for you, who loves you, and will provide everything that you need. And uh, as you do that, remember that you are to pray not just for yourself, but for one another as well. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouragement to pray. 
and to pray to you as our beloved Father. We thank you that the Spirit is working in our hearts to awaken in us that we may address you as Abba, Father, and that we may have the confidence that you are our Heavenly Father who can do for us all that we need and that uh, as we pray, we pray together for one another. O Father, have mercy upon us and enable us to have such faith and such prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.